0: Hey everybody, thanks for joining me again for another episode of Think for Christ. Today we continue our series on evangelical anti-intellectualism. So far we've taken up two primary questions. In episode one we asked, what is the problem of evangelical anti-intellectualism? In episode two we considered the question, why should we care? Today we're going to ask a third question, and that question is, how has it come to this? In this episode, we're going to begin to seek an answer to this third question by taking a historical look at the origins and subsequent spread of anti-intellectualism in the evangelical church. So what I have for you here is a brief historical analysis of when, why, and how the evangelical Protestant church in America turned away from a concern for the cultivation of the Christian mind. In the first episode of this series, I provided some resources for those of you who wanted to do your own research on the subject. Here I'd like to add three more that I have found useful. First, there's Nancy Percy's Total Truth. I quoted from this text in the last episode. This is a fantastic book that I highly recommend you read. Then there is a book by historian Richard Hofstadter called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. This is a book for which he won the Pulitzer Prize, and evangelicals become Exhibit A for his example of anti-intellectualism. And then there's a book by Nathan Hatch called The Democratization of American Christianity. Again, a great resource. Okay, let's get into it. If you are a Christian, you're part of a rich intellectual tradition stretching over the last 2,000 years of human history. Although many in the evangelical community are unaware of this, the Christian church, including Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox, has produced some of the greatest thinkers this world has ever known. Christian intellectuals deeply penetrated every facet of scholarship, such as philosophy, physics, chemistry, biology, astronomy, mathematics, politics, and of course, theology. When it comes to historical intellectual giants, the Christian tradition is utterly unmatched. It really is an embarrassment of riches. To name just a few, there's Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Jerome, Augustine of Hippo, Basil of Caesarea. Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Athanasius, John Philipponus, Boethius, Gregory the Great, Bonaventure, Anselm of Canterbury, Thomas Aquinas, John Duns Scotus, Roger Bacon, Nicholas Copernicus, Giordano Bruno, Johannes Kepler, Galileo Galilei, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Rene Descartes, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, Gottfried Leibniz, John Locke, George Berkeley, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, Thomas Reed, Jonathan Edwards, James Clark Maxwell, John Wesley, John Dalton, Gregor Mentel, Lord Kelvin, And the list goes on and on and on. It was Christians who started the first universities in Europe and who planted schools and colleges everywhere their missionaries have gone, spreading culture, knowledge, and technology around the globe. It's no accident that science itself began in Christian Europe and not somewhere else like China or India. It was the Christian belief in a rational God who created a rational mind equipped to understand an intelligible cosmos that provided both the necessary theoretical foundation as well as the motivation to study and learn about the natural world that God had made. Men became scientific because they believed that there were laws of nature that could be discovered. They believed that there were laws of nature that could be discovered because they believed in a law giver. So historically, the church has been the instrument of reason in society and has been well-equipped to outthink her critics. This historically rich intellectual Christian heritage is our heritage, whether we're aware of it or not. Mark Knoll reminds us that modern evangelicals are the spiritual descendants of leaders and movements distinguished by probing, creative, fruitful attention to the mind. Most of the original Protestant traditions—Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican— either developed a religious intellectual life or worked out theological principles that could and often did sustain penetrating and penetratingly Christian intellectual endeavor. He continues, all held that diligent, rigorous mental activity was a way to glorify God. They all believed in the life of the mind, and they believed in it because they were evangelical Christians. Anti-intellectualism was never part of the fabric of historic Christianity in general, and Protestantism in particular. The evangelical retreat from the mind is therefore something of an anomaly in an otherwise intellectually robust pedigree. Again, Noel writes, Serious intellectual labor has been the norm for at least many Protestants in the evangelical tradition. The 20th century evangelical neglect of the mind is an aberration in a long history of Protestant efforts to give the intellect its due. Now, this is even true of American evangelicalism, at least in the early years. For roughly the first 200 years or so, the Protestant church in this land carried forward the rich tradition of a cultivated Christian intellect. The Puritans in particular were renowned for their care for the mind and the application of careful Christian, Christian thinking, into every facet of life. It was not uncommon for Puritan ministers, like clergyman Cotton Mather of New England, to also be highly influential intellectuals proficient in history, science, politics, and philosophy. Puritans highly valued education and learning as critical to the formation of a godly society. In New England, the Puritans led a reform in education with the Massachusetts Education Laws of 1642 and 1647. The Puritan standards of education were extremely high, and they put our current public educational curriculum to utter shame. For example, Puritan children were expected to learn Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, so that they could read all the classical works of history in their original languages. Historian Richard Hofstadter writes in his book, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, it is doubtful that any community ever had more faith in the value of learning and intellect than Massachusetts Bay. In its inception, New England was not an agricultural community, nor a manufacturing community, nor a trading community. It was a thinking community, an arena and mart for ideas. Its characteristic organ being not the hand, nor the heart, nor the pocket, but the brain. He says, probably no other community of pioneers ever so honored study, so reverenced the symbols and instruments of learning. For this reason, Oz Guinness refers to the Puritan period as the golden age of the American Christian mind. This, of course, was the age of Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest minds America has ever produced. Edwards was a Congregationalist pastor in the Puritan tradition who possessed a powerful intellect and was conversant in the philosophy and science of his day. He wrote profusely, and his sermons, books, and study notes have edified the American church for generations. Edwards had a massive impact on colonial America and was the intellectual shepherd of the Great Awakening, an event we'll say more about in a moment. The Protestant Church of the American Colonies was deeply committed to caring for the mind and had a massive influence on early American society. Indeed, many today have forgotten that American higher education rests upon the foundation of evangelical Christianity. Now, it may come as a surprise to know that almost every Ivy League university was founded by conservative Christians for the primary purpose of educating their ministers. Here I'm talking about colleges like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, and Dartmouth. The original seal of Harvard College communicated its purpose and mission. It was Christo et Ecclesia, for Christ and Church. The schools established by the Protestant Christian community provided the most advanced training of any schools in America. Even as late as 1839, 51 of the 54 presidents of America's colleges were clergymen, and most of these were evangelical. Now, all this goes to show that the evangelical church in America has very strong intellectual roots. So what happened? Well, as with all human history, the historical story behind the rise of anti-intellectualism in the American church is a complicated one. And I'm certainly not going to attempt an exhaustive analysis of that history here. Not only am I not qualified for such a task, but it would make for a very long and boring episode. So luckily for us, although there are many historical confluences that fed the rising waters of evangelical anti-intellectualism, there are two streams that have been particularly robust— there have been two broad historical movements that have uniquely shaped the American evangelical Protestant experience, revivalism and fundamentalism. So we'll have a brief look at each of these. Now, a disclaimer, our examination of these historical episodes here is going to be very narrowly focused. We're going to be looking specifically at the ways in which these movements contributed to the neglect of. Of the Christian mind. Our purpose is not to make a general assessment of these movements in and of themselves, but only as they relate to the problem of evangelical anti-intellectualism. Both the revival movements and the fundamentalist movement in America produced a lot of good fruit and were positive episodes in the history of the church in many respects. However, one negative side effect of both was the tendency to reinforce anti-intellectualism in the life of the church. So let's see how, beginning with revivalism. America has undergone two general periods of widespread revivals, both commonly referred to as Great Awakenings. The first Great Awakening began in England, and it swept over the 13 colonies in the 1740s. It was fueled by the organizational efforts of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles in England, and by the spirited preaching of George Whitfield in the colonies. The revival was also encouraged and defended by Jonathan Edwards in New England. Now, the first awakening was a renewal movement rather than an evangelistic movement uh, among Protestant churches. Colonial believers were called to experience true conversion and an enlivening of their faith. The movement was also pietistic in nature, as believers were encouraged to live lives of authentic holiness. The first awakening was characterized by large open air gatherings, interdenominational appeal, revivalist style preaching, and intense emotional experience. George Whitfield, who was the driving force of the awakening in the colonies, was a former actor a skill set he put to use in his sensational sermons. Whitfield attracted massive crowds wherever he went with his dramatic preaching style that powerfully appealed to the emotions of the people. Although the movement appealed to the passions, it achieved an uncommon balance of piety and rationalism, being characterized by both emotional zeal as well as an emphasis on theology and scholarship. Edwards, the revival's greatest defender, personally embodied this balance of the mind and the passions in his own ministry. The movement was also promoted by many intellectual Protestant ministers and was generally grounded in sound Reformed theology. In fact, the First Great Awakening inspired the creation of many of the evangelical institutions of higher learning, like Princeton and Dartmouth. Yet, despite its deep intellectual moorings, the Great Awakening planted the seeds of tendencies that would eventually contribute to a general neglect of the mind in the church. So what were those seeds? Well, three stand out. First, there was conversionism, or the emphasis on the immediate and subjective conversion experience as a one-time emotional event. The conversionist drift tended to shift the focus of the Christian life toward religious experience while downplaying the cognitive elements of the faith. Then there was populism, the shift in authority from an ecclesiastical class of consecrated ministers toward the ordinary believer who has the right to interpret and understand the faith for himself. The populist drift tended to pit the simple man in his Bible, on the one side, against the professional clerical class with their learning and credentials, on the other. Theological education will gradually begin to be seen as leading to a kind of elitism and spiritual deadness. Populism laid the foundation for what would become the growing negative attitude regarding church authority, tradition, and history as well as a general suspicion of learning and scholarship. And then there was individualism, or the stress on the individual experience, devotion, and holiness of the believer in isolation from the larger Christian community. The individualist drift tended to atomize Christianity through an imbalanced focus on a personal faith, isolated from a sense of corporate faith. One's faith would no longer be seen as intimately connected to the local Christian community, and piety and holiness no longer connected to a sense of corporate spirituality. And this eventually led to the rejection of corporate statements of faith, such as creeds and confessions. And it led to an understanding of faith as primarily being the domain of the individual detached from a local congregation. Now again, these were just seeds planted in the first Great Awakening. Overall, the revival was, as I said, well-balanced, with a strong emphasis on both passions and the intellect. Now, the seeds of anti-intellectualism planted in the first Great Awakening came to full bloom in the second Great Awakening. What we call the Second Great Awakening was actually comprised of a series of revivals that swept across the young American nation, and especially the South and frontier lands in the first half of the 19th century. It was during this period that we get the famous revival camp meetings that could last for days and even sometimes weeks on end. This was the age of the rugged circuit rider who would brave the dangers of the frontier, riding from town to town. Spreading revival. This time also witnessed the explosive growth of the Methodist and Baptist denominations. Like the first awakening, the second awakening was also characterized by intense spiritual enthusiasm, fervor, and emotion. However, unlike the first, the second awakening lacked the healthy balance between the Christian mind and the passions. It had neither the theological depth nor the intellectual leadership provided by men like Whitfield and Edwards, and was instead largely promulgated by poorly trained itinerant preachers consisting mostly of simple farmers with minimal education. As a result, the movement, especially in the South and on the frontier, became increasingly emotionalist, populist, individualist, and generally anti-intellectual. One unfortunate result of the revival was a growing disdain for the things of the mind. Now, between the First and Second Great Awakenings, there was, of course, an earth shattering event for the colonies the American Revolution and War for Independence. Such a massive event in the life of the new nation could not help but affect the churches in America. In fact, Historians point out that the single most distinctive feature of the Second Great Awakening, as opposed to the first, was the so-called democratization of American Christianity. The Second Awakening was especially marked off from the first by its unreflective adoption and absorption of the political ideology of the American Revolution many saw the revival movement as a continuation of the american war of independence just as american citizens had cast off civil tyranny so american christians were now called to cast off ecclesiastical tyranny the modern political values of autonomy and popular sovereignty were adopted and popularized by the revival preachers and leaders the concept of self-governance and politics functioned as a model of personal autonomy in religion. Spiritual liberty was often equated with political liberty. Evangelicals felt the call to establish a religion of the people, by the people, and for the people. The rhetoric of the revolution was uncritically transferred from the political to the religious arena. Church authority was often denounced as tyranny. Creeds and liturgies were called popery and priestcraft. Corporate statements of faith, confessions, and theological formulations were seen as man-made devices intended to keep believers bound to clerical tyrants. Christians were encouraged to liberate themselves from all forms of natural authority, whether that be church, state, teachers, even the family. Revivals became a public defiance of traditional religious authority. As the desire to establish a new order politically spilled over into the church, a movement began to grow to start a new order ecclesiastically. There emerged a growing idea that the church had become corrupted from its original intent and was in need of revolution, in need of a new start. Thus began the so-called restoration movement in America which was an effort to restore the church to the place of the original purity which belonged to the primitive apostolic church. Just as a revolution had started a new country, so the church had to be started over again, this time on the New Testament alone. The restoration movement further fractured the Protestant church in America and led to the formation of the first indigenous American denominations, the Churches of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, and the so-called Christian churches. Commenting on the anti-historicism arising from the democratization and restoration currents of the Second Great Awakening, Nancy Piercy writes, The cavalier rejection of the past stripped the church of the rich resources of centuries' worth of theological reflection, scriptural meditation, and spiritual experience. It inculcated an attitude that there was nothing to be gained from grappling with the thought of the great minds of the past. It was an approach doomed, she says, almost by definition, to anti-intellectualism and theological shallowness. Evangelicals were enthusiastically liberating themselves from their own Christian heritage, and this was leaving them intellectually impoverished. Now, interestingly, Whereas the first awakening was largely a movement among denominations that were Calvinistic in theology, like the Congregationalists, Presbyterians, the second awakening was theologically Arminian and spread primarily among the Baptists and the Methodists. The Arminian insistence on individual freedom and autonomy and salvation fit nicely with the political liberalism of the day, which represented citizens as independent and autonomous members of a democratic polity. And this led to different ways of thinking about revival. The first awakening stressed the sovereignty of God over revival. Revival, it was believed, was an act of God's grace that was to be received with humility and thanksgiving. During the second awakening, many preachers, such as the lawyer turned evangelist, Charles Finney, believed that revival was a result of human effort the deployment of a proper technique, and could be predicted and controlled. And due to the belief that revival could be manufactured, a pragmatist approach began to dominate the scene. Revivalists deployed whatever methods worked the best to secure maximum number of conversions. Revival preachers became pragmatic marketers and entrepreneurs focused on results. The scholarly training of ministers and seminaries was being replaced with training and practical revival technique. As Richard Hofstadler chronicles, the Puritan ideal of the minister as an intellectual and educational leader was steadily weakened in the face of the evangelical idea of the minister as a popular crusader and exhorter. Sermons, too, began to change from the traditional historical model of a well-reasoned formal argument based on careful exegesis of scripture to that of an impassioned exhortation designed to elicit emotional response and to provide practical guidance for daily living. Preachers soon became celebrities whose authority was not based on their education or training, but on their charisma and ability to gather a crowd. Many of the preachers were self-appointed, and were entertainers skilled at arousing the emotions of the crowd. The conversionist, populist, and individualist seeds that were planted in the first Great American Revival sprouted in the second Great American Revival and eventually produced the bad fruit of anti-authoritarianism, anti-historicism, and anti-traditionalism. And as a result of the deep mistrust of the past, tradition, and all forms of mediated knowledge, Anti-intellectualism had become a central feature of American revivalism. As Noel writes, "...revivals called people to Christ as a way of escaping tradition, including traditional learning. They called upon individuals to take the step of faith for themselves. In so doing, they often left the impression that individual believers could accept nothing from others." In the place of the great Puritan intellectual tradition that characterized the early years of American history, an intellectually shallow, theologically illiterate form of Christianity had emerged in the 19th century. The historic Christian religion had been replaced by a uniquely American populist and individualist Christian religion. And it's no coincidence that it was during this period of Christian intellectual drought that the major Christian cults were born. Cults that have been responsible for turning away countless millions of believers from the historic Christian faith. The tragic effects of the new intellectualist populist version of Christianity was dramatically on display in the so-called burned over district of Western New York. This was an area that was saturated with revival preachers and revivalist movements throughout the 19th century. Thousands of people were converted by revival preachers in this region, but they were largely unstable and untaught, having no real understanding of historic Christianity, nor an intellectual grasp of the faith. As a result, the two largest cults, Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as the Seventh-day Adventists, can all trace their origins to Christian communities inhabiting this relatively small geographical region of the United States. What happened in the burned over district should serve as a cautionary tale for the evangelical community of what happens when the proper care for the Christian mind is abandoned. Now, the revivalism of the 19th century generally weakened the collective evangelical mind, leaving it vulnerable to the dangers of heresy from within, as we just saw. It also left the Christian community unprepared for the intellectual assault it was about to face from without. This external attack on the Christian faith came from the fast-emerging secular worldview of scientific naturalism. In brief, scientific naturalism is the view that only the natural world exists, and that science is the sole or only authoritative means for discovering truth about reality. Now, obviously, scientific naturalism excludes the supernatural from either the description or explanation of reality. Scientific naturalism challenged the Christian community of the late 19th and early 20th centuries on two fronts. First, there was the attack on scripture as the Word of God, that was coming from German higher criticism of the Bible. Biblical scholars in Europe were adapting the naturalist perspective and applying it to their examination of Scripture. And unsurprisingly, the Bible was stripped of its divine authority and virtually every vestige of the supernatural. Second, there was an attack on the revelation of God found in nature from Darwinian evolution, Darwin wiped away the creative hand of God in the natural world and replaced it with the purely physical force of natural selection working on random chance events. Interestingly and crucially, Christianity was being hit at both sources of its revelational knowledge the Bible and creation. And over the first couple decades of the 20th century, secular naturalism began to infiltrate American institutions of higher learning. Institutions that, as we've seen, had their origin in the evangelical community. Now, how did the Protestant Christian Church react to this naturalist takeover? Well, it basically split into two distinct camps. There were, on the one hand, Christians who largely accepted the general framework of scientific naturalism, at least at the academic level, adjusting their view on the Bible and reinterpreting the faith in light of the latest science, we can trace the rise and popularity of theological liberalism in America to this general era. On the other hand, there were Christians who refused to surrender their view of the Bible as the Word of God, and who rejected compromise with the secular scientific worldview. Unlike the first group of liberal Christians, these believers remained evangelical Christians. A tension grew between the two groups in the realm of higher education and high culture that would later be called the modernist fundamentalist controversy. There was a war of ideas raging for cultural preeminence in the 20th century, a war that was ultimately lost by evangelicals, but not because they were defeated on the battlefield of ideas, but rather because they fled the field, surrendering the intellectual territory to the enemy. Thus began the age of fundamentalism. As noted already, fundamentalism is the second broad historical movement that has uniquely shaped the anti-intellectual character of American evangelicalism. In their admirable zeal to protect the basic teaching of historic Christian orthodoxy, thinking believers everywhere retreated from the universities Instead of defending the universities that were their intellectual heritage and fighting for the cause of Christ there, they left them to be inundated by the rising floodwaters of scientific naturalism. A new Christian subculture was being created uh, and progressively isolated from the higher American society. The Christian intellectuals who departed from the secularizing universities set up their own distinctly Christian schools and seminaries that could be insulated and protected from external threat. Christians set up their own parachurch ministries, radio programs, fellowship and Bible study groups, youth institutions, and missions. Evangelicals adopted a ghetto mentality and an attitude of defensiveness towards mainstream culture. Once the intellectual arbiters of the nation Evangelicals were now largely sidelined and sequestered from influencing the mind of America. Christian faith was becoming marginalized and privatized. Now, several theological innovations were produced during the fundamentalist era that further contributed to the evangelical slide into anti-intellectualism, movements that may have been good in themselves, but harmful to the life of the mind. Historians typically point to the holiness movement, sometimes called the higher life or Keswick spirituality, Pentecostalism, and premillennial dispensationalism as examples of fundamentalist novelties. The latter, premillennial dispensationalism, was perhaps the most harmful to the Christian mind since it was the most intellectual form of fundamentalism. Dispensationalism tended toward an obsession with the end times. Which had the effect of keeping believers from thinking deeply about the present culture and natural order. For many, the focus on the end of the age encouraged an apocalypticism and escapist pietism that generally led to indifferent or negative attitudes when it came to higher learning and culture. The dispensational hermeneutic also tended to be shallow, as careless connections were commonly made between. Bible prophecies, and geopolitical events of the day. Instead of scholarly engagement, dispensationist leaders typically focused on lay oriented Bible and prophecy books, tapes, and conferences. Gradually, dispensationalism became the dominant theological impulse within the evangelical community. Consider that in the 1970s, the best-selling book of any sort in the United States, after the Bible, of course, was Hal Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth, a populist interpretation of world events in terms of historicist dispensationalism. Knowles' assessment of the fundamentalist movement is that it was an intellectual disaster because of the legacy it bequeathed to evangelical intellectual life. He writes, as a result of following a theology that did not provide Christian guidance for the wider intellectual life, there has been, properly speaking, no fundamentalist philosophy, no fundamentalist history of science, no fundamentalist aesthetics, no fundamentalist history, no fundamentalist novels or poetry, no fundamentalist jurisprudence, no fundamentalist literary criticism, and no fundamentalist sociology. Or at least, he continues, there has been none that has compelled attention for insights in the way that God has made the world and situated human beings on this planet. And because evangelicals, though often dissenting from specific features of fundamentalism, have largely retained the mentality of fundamentalism when it comes to looking at the world, there has been a similarly meager harvest of evangelical intellectual life. Unfortunately, the fundamentalist movement is not just a curious but isolated event of the past, The evangelical church in America today is still largely characterized by many of the anti-intellectual tendencies of our past. Piercy writes that today evangelicalism is still emerging from the fundamentalist era, still working to regain a more holistic understanding of the lordship of Christ over all of life and culture. She says, I would suggest that in our churches and parachurch ministries, we still encounter many of the basic patterns from an earlier age. The tendency to define religion, primarily in emotional terms. The anti-credal, anti-historical attitude that ignores the theological richness of the past. The assertion of individual choice as as the final determinant of belief. The atomistic view of the church as merely a collection of individuals who happen to believe the same things. The preference for social activism over intellectual reflection. She continues, most of all, perhaps, evangelicalism still produces a celebrity model of leadership, men who are entrepreneurial and pragmatic, who deliberately manipulate their listeners' emotions, who subtly enhance their own image through self-serving personal anecdotes, whose leadership style within their own congregation and parachurch ministry tends to be imperious and domineering, who calculate success in terms of results, and who are willing to employ the latest secular techniques to boost numbers. By understanding the historical sources of tendencies and trends that continue to shape the character and disposition of the evangelical mind today, we're in a better position to diagnose our current struggles and to craft tools to correct them. A corporate self-awareness of both the centrality of the Christian mind, which characterized the first 200 years of American evangelicalism, as well as the neglect of the mind that characterized the next 200 years is needed if we're to recover the best of our heritage while shedding from ourselves the worst of that heritage. Now, unfortunately, anti-intellectualism is a part of the legacy bequeathed to us from our past. As I said, understanding that past is the first step towards reformation. These then are some of the major historical movements that are partially responsible for the current neglect of the mind among American evangelicals. Now, as evangelicals, we're not just trying to shake ourselves free from the anti-intellectual tendencies of our past. We're also trying to swim against the current of a cultural environment that has also lost its mind. So next time on Think for Christ, we're going to consider the problem of evangelical anti-intellectualism from a sociological perspective.